Welcome to Practice of Being Seen, episode number 27. Before we start the show today, we'd like to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Medify, a self-awareness app created by therapists that helps you to be your best self. Medify is available for a free download on both Apple and Android devices. We really love it, and we'll tell you a little bit more about why at the end of the show. We'd also like to invite you to join our Practice of Being Seen community on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash pobscast to join. That's P-O-B-S-C-A-S-T. You can also find a link for both Medify and the community in our show notes. And now, the show. The Practice of Being Seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is the practice of being seen. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today, we are thrilled to have Margaret Thompson with us. Margaret is an LSW who's worked with couples and trained therapists for over 35 years. She owns the Salt Lake Marital and Family Therapy Clinic, a private practice group in Salt Lake City, Utah. Margaret is also the founder of Couples Therapy Mastery, a program that helps them integrate the core principles of couples therapy so they feel more confident in their work and can build a thriving practice. Her goal is to help therapists feel energized by their work instead of depleted. Welcome, Margaret. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> we are so happy to have you. You know, there are so many things I want to dive in and talk to you about. Before we began today, we were talking to you a little bit about the work that you do and about how you help therapists apply both neuroscience and attachment science into their work with couples. Can you talk yes. about that a little bit? Like, help our listeners gain a sense of what that means. Well, basically, I specialize in couples therapy, and almost all couple therapies have an attachment theory base that they work from. So what I found, though, is many therapists, even though they've been trained in attachment theory or in neuroscience or any kind of couple therapy, they struggle with knowing how to apply these concepts into their day-to-day -day practice. And certainly their clients may have trouble even understanding what attachment means before they walk through the door, right? Well, I think if you have 10 people in a room and you ask the definition of attachment for all those 10 people, you get 10 different ideas and definitions. So there really is no agreement. Well, there's an agreement, but no basic understanding of what that means. So everybody has their own interpretation. I was going to suggest that maybe you even get 30 different interpretations <laughs> with 10 people in the room. <laughs> That's really a very good point. <laughs> But so from a really basic way of understanding this, like if we were uh -huh. to really try to just kind of bring everybody onto the same page for the purpose of this conversation, how do you define attachment? Well, when I think of attachment theory, I think of trauma. And the research in the last decade has really shown us that early childhood trauma, whether it's emotional, physical, sexual, any kind, impacts us throughout our lives. And it impacts the way that we connect with people and how we form attachments either early in our life 
after those traumas happen and then later as we move away from our family of origin into relationships as adults. I'm so like on board with you here, but I want to dive in and help us parse this out a little bit more. How do okay. you define trauma? Now, trauma can be anything from neglect. It could be an experience that somebody remembers that they still feel deeply about and haven't resolved because it's not really a category or definition of, you know, these are the traumatic things that have happened to you. It's the idea of unexpressed emotion around something that's emotionally charged and painful. And if that pain hasn't been resolved, it becomes repeated in later relationships. Can you give us some examples of how that pain might get repeated in later relationships? Oh, let's say that you have a history of neglect and your parents were unavailable. They were just gone for whatever reason. So you learned how to fend for yourself. You're kind of a tough kid, a, a scrappy person, but you want relationships. So later as an adult, you might struggle with really knowing how to trust somebody or be close or be more vulnerable because it's an experience that you're not familiar with, you don't know how to do, and has also been somewhat scary or dangerous before when you had those feelings. And would you say that almost every single one of us deals with these kind of held, unexpressed emotional charged relational experiences somewhere in our life? I think it is impossible to go through life and not have this happen. Hmm. So yes, it happens to all of us to some degree. Yeah. It's not like some huge trauma, like something that you have nightmares over and that really severely impacts your life in very obvious ways. It can be very subtle and clients who come in to see us don't even know that this is going on. Yeah. I feel like it can show up in a lot of different ways too. One of the ways that I often see it is when clients come into my office and they just have so much trouble attaching to how they feel. Exactly. And if that's the case, then what it says to me as a therapist is this person has had to isolate their feelings somehow because it's been difficult to feel them or to express them. And usually it's a painful emotion of some sort. And it's a lot safer just to go through without feeling. And then the other thing that happens, let's say you have this kind of trauma in your background, you want to get close, but as you feel closer, your attachment system is activated. And instead of feeling, oh, this is great, this is safe, I love this, your body reacts, your whole being is saying, this isn't safe, this isn't good. So you find yourself shutting down or not trusting or thinking you know, negative thoughts about it. And what happens is then you think this relationship isn't working or the person is the problem. Right. And it's very confusing for people because they don't know why they're not happier with what's going on. Funny story for you. You'll appreciate this. Okay. Maybe our listeners will too. My husband, when I first met him, he doted on me. He was amazing. I was in my master's program at the time, and I was like knee deep in like a dozen papers that I was writing and studying for exams. And he would bring me food that was all packaged up in these beautiful boxes. And so I dumped him. Exactly. You know, because like... <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, totally, right? <laughs> like he did nice things and it felt good and it freaked me out. Oh, did you ever think what's wrong with you? Or oh, did no. you think, no, oh, this no, is no, just no. really... Something had to be wrong with him because this felt good. Yeah, that's what I meant. What's wrong with him? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. And so then a few years later, we dated again. What did you say to him? I don't remember that part. <laughs> oh, okay. You were too busy he was, studying He was for devastated exams. for like a few days. You just figured it out. Okay. Yeah. And so I dumped him a few years later, I think it was. We dated again for about a week, and then I dumped him again for a similar reason. 
And then Mm -hmm. he finally, you know, we were still hanging out among the same circles. We were going rock climbing and snowboarding together. We were on a snowboarding trip. And on the way back from the trip, after feeling all of the butterflies all weekend long in my belly, he tells me that he's moving to another part of the country. And that's when I was like, I need to be with this man. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I'm just leaving that out there as an example of how this stuff can show up in our lives. It fits in perfectly. And (laughs) you had a great ending and a great outcome, but these unconscious patterns are reverberating in us all the time. They really are. Mm -hmm. So much. Yeah. You know, as I'm listening to you two talk, I think there might be a little bit of mind reading going on between two therapists who are connecting all the dots here. I would love to kind of break this down a little more and understand what might have been really happening underneath. In my story. For your story. Yeah. I'm listening and I'm nodding my head, but I realize I'm making some mental leaps, but I would love for our listeners to kind of understand what might have been occurring here. Yeah. I'd love to address that because this is, I think, how therapists struggle when they're trying to apply this kind of stuff. So let's say that you loved being with your husband or boyfriend at the time, and you felt great, or if it's a client in my office and they have this new relationship, but then all of a sudden they start having this physical sensation or negative thinking or thoughts about the relationship or about the person. There's something that's disconcerting, that's unsettling even, but they don't know what it is. They don't know how to describe it. And what you'll find is that people either do, like you did, you know, dump him, or they find problems or they create problems as a way to kind of defend against this feeling. And really what, as a therapist, we find is that there's an emotion that's underneath that discomfort usually some kind of loss or pain or sadness or grief or something because it's connected to the original trauma, which probably has something to do with either an angry feeling or hurt feeling or some kind of pain that they experienced that they never got to say to their parent. So let's say you have... I'm taking that in and I'm going, yeah, that's exactly what was happening. My father had died not long before. So, you you know, there it is, right? And even if people are coming to therapy, it's very hard to process that kind of pain because as Americans, as people in the world today, we're not supposed to feel that kind of pain. Oh, no. We're only supposed to feel happy and joy. We're not supposed to allow ourselves the space to feel the things that don't feel good. We need to get the work done so we don't have time. In relationships, like we should be like jumping through poppy fields all the time together and having great sex (laughs) until you're at least 90. And you forgot the part about parents always do the best for their kids or they meant well. Oh, yeah. They always mean well. And the kids always turn out fine. They're always fine. Uh-huh. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's go in because we're joking around a little bit right now. But this mm-hmm. is really, really serious stuff. And this affects all of us. Well, what I want to do is share with you how therapists really struggle with these issues. because. Please do. It's a theory, and it makes sense to to all of us as we listen to it, but how you put that into application, how you work with somebody in your session in the room with them is different because you're looking for those underlying emotions, that painful feeling, the, the things that are unexpressed. So you're talking to somebody who's spent their lifetime covering this up, right? Mm-hmm. And you're looking for what's been covered up, which, of course, they're going to try and continue to cover up because that's all they know. So there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of skill that goes into really picking that up with clients. But this is different, but also connected. It's a very emotional kind of therapy for you as a therapist and for your couples, your clients, because 
When you've got this unresolved pain in their early attachment figures, their parents, as an adult, their next attachment figure is their partner, right? Yes. So all the vulnerable feelings are still there and all the defenses are there. So if all of a sudden somebody hurts your feelings, you're no longer just saying, oh, wow, that hurt my feelings. I'm sure you didn't mean that. Could you just try again? People go into their defensive positions of, I can't believe you did that and this hurts so deeply and their inner core pain is expressed in a defensive sort of way if that makes any sense. So you really deal with that kind of emotion and there's a lot of fear that is presented in your office. People are afraid of you know, the fight that's happening. They don't know what's happening. They don't feel safe with each other. And this is what therapists often talk about. You know, The difficult part of being a couples therapist is that couples easily escalate, they get triggered, they become emotionally reactive in just a millisecond. And these are our early defenses protecting us, keeping us safe. And you can imagine how painful it is or difficult for your clients or for yourself or myself to be with the person that you feel the safest with, you trust the most, and all of a sudden they you know, are the person that hurt you. They're the enemy. They're the trigger. Sub- subconsciously, right. Yeah. So, and when people are in this defensive mode, this reactive mode, they're just trying to survive. It's our old survival mechanisms that get activated. But it's very destructive to the relationship. And couples can be locked into these kind of cycles for a long time. Yeah. And then the the final reason I think that therapists struggle with applying this is that, I mean, we all have confidence issues in general, right? I think women, perhaps, maybe more. But I think that when you have a couple who they're arguing, they're loud, sometimes they're scary, (laughs) sometimes they overpower you, you have to have skills to be able to stop that kind of cycle that escalation and to take charge of a session and often these are skills that therapists don't love they don't necessarily have or they don't want to have i mean as therapists we're pretty peaceful people right so to all of a sudden have to interrupt a session or interrupt a couple or say wait a minute this has got to stop or take charge these are skills that i love to teach therapists because they're often really nervous to do this they're afraid but when they actually work, it's amazing to watch their confidence just soar. I want you to go there. I also want you to kind of speak to this from another perspective too, because I'm thinking that the same skills that you're about to talk to us about, and and Mm -hmm. this is just intuitively, I'm thinking that these same skills that you're about to talk to us about and teach us how therapists put this into action, it's probably also very parallel to what therapists ultimately are trying to teach the clients that they're working with. Exactly. And if you cannot master these skills, I mean, you basically are acting as a role model for your clients. Yeah. You're teaching them how to stop bad behavior, how to take charge when somebody's hurting you or you feel hurt, how to also access the vulnerable part of yourself, of your emotional state. And how to use that vulnerable part of yourself as information about where those boundaries need to exist. Yes. And that must have ripples not only in the session, but throughout a therapist's life as he or she is looking at all their other relationships. Well, it's important as a therapist to really kind of do some work on your own stuff, your own history. Because if you don't know that you have trouble with, you know, really controlling women or passive men or mean men or whatever the issue may be, you can kind of end up taking sides with somebody or feel sorry for one of the partners and not be really aware that it's a two-way street and that your own issues will get triggered by your couple. Mm -hmm. 
and that you'll get pulled into their dynamic. And sometimes you can even use that as part of your therapy. If you're aware of it. If you're aware of it and <laughs> if you feel comfortable and they're the kind of clients who would get it and appreciate it. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about this how to stop bad behavior piece that you were just leaning into? Well, I'm sure you can think of couples that they've come in and, you know, within just a, a millisecond, like I said, all of a sudden they're arguing, they're heated, they, you can't even interrupt them, you can't get a word in edgewise because they don't want to listen to what you're saying. And they go into the same old fight that they've done for years, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when you start to worry that, wait a minute, are other therapists here in the clinic today? Can they hear this? <laughs> Are people in the waiting room going to be able to, you know, hear what's happening, that there's a big argument going on? So you get sensitive to how loud they are, how aggressive they are, and just how frightened they are. But I think a lot of therapists get frightened at this point and don't realize their clients are in fear. They're so in fear because, you know, who wants to interrupt an arguing loud couple, right, that you hardly know? We do, therapists. It's our our job. It's our role. It's what I do every day. Right. Yeah. I'm sure it's a skill that you've learned because I know when I first started with couples, they would do that and I had no idea what to do. I mean, I thought, excuse me, can I say something over here? (laughs) And by then. Can you please, um, (laughs) you know what I'm hearing in this too, because so often, you know, we speak to therapists, we also speak to healers and understanding that in itself is something of an archetype. And I think you had mentioned this before, Margaret, that many therapists come into this work with that kind of sense of peacefulness and wanting to heal and help and hold. Yes. And part of healing and helping and holding is being able to set limits and create boundaries and be a container. Mm. Because without that, and a container is not always passive. No. Right? Yeah. What I also find, though, is you don't just do it once in the beginning of treatment. Right. (laughs) Because whenever they are close to some kind of vulnerable place, they'll become activated again. Mm -hmm. So whenever they're afraid, whenever they have an emotion that they want to express or need to, and they feel disconnected instead, and the fear is taking over, that's when their defenses kick right in. So if you look at it that way and can understand it, it's much easier to interrupt, to basically take charge and help them calm down and really get to the true issues that need to be resolved. I had a couple in here just the other day who got caught in an old fight and they were just in the fight. But when we really got underneath it, when we helped them slow down and we went through Mm -hmm. this whole closing their eyes and breathing kind of stuff to slow down. And when we really went underneath to what they both wanted out of it, they had the Mm -hmm. same wants, but they were staying in the fight because that's what they knew. But they had no idea. They had no idea that they had the same ones, that they both actually wanted the same thing, the same resolution. And then what happened when you helped them express that? Oh, they melted. Like, amazing. Like the, the defensiveness melted off of them. They, had, they struggled with that a little bit. It took a little while. They had to, mm-hmm. we kept coming back to it. But the, the place of, um, that elevated place and the, the contempt and, and the, the criticism that was between them, like that slowly started to give way to something more receptive and softer and more intimate. And that's the transformation that couple therapists talk about when they transform relationships. It's really helping them get back to that original connection, that love, that peaceful feeling, that I'm home feeling that they had at one point. They're afraid has been gone, but when it reappears, they're so relieved and it's a great thing to 
participate in with them. Yeah. Really. And I've noticed that the more evolved I become as a couples therapist and the better I get at doing that piece of work, the better my relationship with my own partner gets. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are of all of your own defenses, yeah, right? Totally. Push things away. And I see where they're coming up and I start noticing what I'm doing and that time when I want to roll away from him on the bed and I want to just, I have to take notice of it and own it and take responsibility and then come back because so that's even though you- the work. It's coming back. And it's still kind of hard to do. Oh, yeah. I think the shift for me, and I'm sure that I still have a lot more maturing to do in my own life, but the shift for me has been that I know how to do it now. And that was the hardest part to learn was Mm -hmm. how to do it. Now I know that it's time to do it. It's like, okay, I know how to go for a run. I'm really good at running, but it's time to put my shoes on and get out the door. Excellent. Like it's time to make the repair. Yeah. Like you have to notice when it's time. Mm -hmm. And how long or what was your process like to get to that point? Because that's the process that I love supporting therapists in. Well, so we're married now. We're going on 11 years of marriage and I have been a therapist a little longer. So, (laughs) So I don't know exactly where in there things started to make that shift for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like I'm waking up. I don't know if I'm fully evolved. I'm sure and I want there to be a lot more evolution, but I feel like I'm starting to figure this stuff out. (laughs) I want to change the subject to chair, if you don't mind. Fine. Imagine if you don't really understand attachment theory or any of this trauma work, and you're a regular therapist or you have some understanding, and you start to see couples, and you know they're in this horrendous fight over and over, week after week, and they're just not making progress. You can imagine that many therapists, you know, without that understanding can think, you guys just have this problem and it's just not going to work out. I mean, no matter what we've done, we've focused on this, we've problem solved that, we've gone into this resolution piece, and here you are still at this point, you know, maybe it just can't work. And that's scary to me because couples are already thinking that when they come in, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe this can't work. And that one of the reasons that it's hard to go to couple therapy is because what if the therapist actually says that? I mean, they're just so hoping that you don't say that and you have some way to help them reconnect. Um, I think that's the big thing. I was just writing down this word right before you said it. I -hmm. think one of the biggest things that we can do as couples therapists is hold hope. Yes. Absolutely. Right. It's not our job to fix it necessarily. It's not our right. job to watch it fall apart or any of those things. It's our job to be that safe container that gives them the permission right. to explore their relationship and learn new skills in a new way. I mean, sometimes it can be so confusing and you really, I mean, no matter what you try, things aren't getting better. But I've actually said, I have no idea why, but I just have this feeling that Underneath all of this, there's this connection that's still there, and you need to find it no matter what it takes. Hmm. And people will help you in this process as well yeah. if they can admit that or know that or own it. So you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know all the techniques or ways to figure this out. You jump in there with your couple, and you're part of the process. And if you can feel it somewhere in there, you help them feel it too. You know, I can't help but think about, you know, I've heard a lot of therapist stories because I work with therapists and help them, you know, write into their stores, write their websites and their blog posts, et cetera. And Uh I've heard stories about, you know, those times when you have a couple where somebody's already checked out 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that case, is it still that sense of the therapist is there to hold hope, like mm-hmm. help us understand hope in a different way? Because I'm wondering if some people are listening to this and I they're... I hope that they'll check back in. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a few, you know, a small percentage of couples who do come in and the one person says, oh, sure, I'll go to therapy. Or the other person who said, yeah, we went to therapy and it didn't work. They might go to one session and then don't listen to anything you say and at the end go, well, this didn't help. So we've got to file for divorce. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's Those the couples, work. Yeah, that's the work too. It's just helping them discern yes. where they are in their relationship. Yes. And they've tried to say they want out and the other person hasn't listened or they just haven't been clear in saying it. Sometimes, you know, not working things out is best for both partners, ultimately. I would go so far as to say that helping couples know when it's time to break Mm -hmm. up is also a part of working things out. And hope is sometimes outside the relationship. Yeah. Well, hope is for clarity. Yes. And if you're really in sync with your couple and they may not be aware of this, you'll feel it or you'll be having those thoughts and thinking that Mm -hmm. independently. And it's your job then to bring those issues into the room. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think this is another place though where that gets hard. You know, what is the stuff that I'm thinking? What are my preconceived notions? And what needs a voice within the room? As a therapist. Mm. As a therapist, sometimes also just as a human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, therapists are humans too, so. I've heard that. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah. You know, another place I'd like to dance with you a little bit is just in, you know, so often I work with couples where one or both partners are also in individual therapy. And I find that that collaboration process can go really awesomely or it could fall flat. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's something to not just write in your notes, oh, you're in individual therapy. It's very important to keep your eye on that. Well, let me give you a different perspective on that. Have you ever worked with somebody and they presented you a situation, a scenario, their relationship and all their feelings about it and all the evidence on their side with, you know, confirming their position? And then you meet the partner and think, what are you talking about? Yeah. (laughs) Right? So everything is perception. Everything is their own experience and reaction. So it's easy as a therapist when you're just providing individual work to collude with your client even, or to agree or to think, gosh, I feel that way too. Or if you're feeling so abused, then abuse must be going on here. And I use the word abuse, not like legal abuse, but any kind of emotional or abuse of of any kind. Mm -hmm. But when you have the partner in the room and somebody's still seeing it, but you're really thinking what you feel and what you see isn't really what's happening. That's the therapeutic work that is so critical. And if you're just providing individual therapy, sometimes you don't have access to that information and you can't guess. You can only try and open that door in as many ways as you can with your client. Often you can say, well, yes, I know you have this position, but do you think there's anything that you're doing to maintain this pattern or, you know, something like that. And people are pretty forthcoming if they really want to get better, unless they're just too afraid. But you want to be able to have the individual therapy working with your couple work because couple work is pretty confrontive. Yes. And it's holding each person accountable for their role in how things aren't working. And if you have a therapist who's sympathizing with someone and you're kind of pushing them to let go of that, then you're in conflict. And then what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also find that, you know, just knowing there's a couple I'm working with and they're 
one of the individual therapists is just so appreciative of the opportunity to collaborate. Oh, great. And so we have this wonderful relationship that we're building and we're doing a lot of consultation with each other and it has enriched, I think, the work for both of us and it certainly has enriched the therapy experience for the clients. And this brings up another stressor for therapists Mm -hmm. because collaboration is critical. It's so important, but it's a lot of work and it's a lot of time. And it's really vulnerable because that person's going to get to hear your clinical thoughts. They're going to get to see how you think and what's your next intervention and what are you thinking and what are you planning and do they think the same way that you do and do you guys see eye to eye and what if they don't? And And who has more experience? And What if they think you're wrong or you're not very smart or... Mm -hmm. They've known the client longer, so how would you know? And they want to tell you what to do. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that come up there. And I think Mm -hmm. all of those things are the things that get in the way of good collaboration. Yes. And it's in therapists, we're all busy, so it's hard to take the time to do so. But very important. Yeah. But I want to bring up one more thing, too. I don't know if you found this in your own practice, but when you start first seeing couples or just difficult clients in general, there is up to a 50% no-show rate. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the average couple therapy is between 10 and 12 sessions or so. But 50% of clients will drop out of treatment before the sixth visit, meaning half of the clients that come in to see you don't complete the therapy, so therefore they're not better, Mm -hmm. right? And this can be very disillusioning for the new therapist trying to build a practice, trying to feel good about their work. You know, and people aren't coming back. And what do you do with that? Do you, how do you admit that to yourself? How do you think, you know, how much control do I have over this? Is it all their fault? And just dealing with that, almost a rejection or, or a, you know, I guess I didn't do a good job kind of feeling and keep going. Yeah. With collaboration, with people dropping out, with dealing with intense emotions, you can see why from time to time it's easy to go, oh, this work is so hard. Why am I doing this? But on the other hand, when you've got that couple who's made that transformation, it's almost like all of that is out the window and here you are with somebody present with them and really just watching this unfold and it's just amazing. Yeah. And this seems to speak to the sense that the therapist's journey is in session, but it's also the entrepreneurial journey that is kind of folded mm-hmm. around it. And mm-hmm. then those are always in a dance and perhaps sometimes in competition and sometimes supporting one another. And no matter what, it can be mm-hmm. kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. And well, really vulnerable. Things- I mean, like, I think, Margaret, I know one of the things you talk about a lot is confidence. But I think this is one of those places where therapists can use that help because if their livelihood is based on the return of the client and the work for the client is just so hard sometimes. And, you know, or they're dropping out because they want to avoid the work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, I think there are things that you can do to re-engage or to engage them so that doesn't happen as much. But one of the things that we do in our clinic is I have a two-hour meeting every week that's not paid, that's mandatory for all therapists who work here, including me, where we present every single one of our cases at least once. And the purpose of that is to get used to talking about your cases and to never thinking that either I know everything or if I have problems, I need to just kind of ignore them or cover them up because what will people think, right? I I have found that the more experienced I become as a therapist, the more consultation groups I try to join. Because you feel, (laughs) exactly, you feel more confident asking for help, right? Yeah, you know, I'm in like two different like real supervision groups right now 
Uh-huh. And then, you know, like I reach out for consultation in a lot of other places also, but like I have my solid, I know when they're meeting regular consultations. And when you're very first starting, it's, it's scary to do that. It's so scary. Maybe I'll share my experience with you. Yes, please. And the reason that I'm really dedicated to helping therapists not give up, to hang in there until they can get in the groove, until they can really feel, hey, I know this, I've got this. I was in graduate school, it was my first year, and I was the youngest person in my program. And I say that because I was so aware of it. I think I even tried to find out, am I really? Because that just confirmed everything I thought. I know nothing. Everybody else knows more than I do. I'll just kind of coast and learn a lot because I don't have that much to offer, but I guess somehow I made it here, right? (laughs) And my first practicum was in a school setting, and my supervisor, I don't even remember how this happened, but I had an assignment where I was working with a group of elementary school kids in their classroom, and I had no idea really how to talk to kids. I didn't know much about child development or, you know, you talk in a different voice. I didn't really know what I was doing at all. So, you know, one day she said, you know, Margaret, I was listening to you on the intercom during one of your classes. And I thought, oh, no, you listen to that horrible thing, that session that I just did. (laughs) You know, and I didn't know this. So, you know, there's a feeling of betrayal, right? Because at least you could have warned me that you were going to listen. I could have maybe sounded better. But she basically said to me, I could tell that you're really struggling with what to say to them and what to do with them. And I said, well, yeah, waiting, because I knew that that was exactly right. And she said to me, you know, maybe you really should consider a different profession. Oh. Ooh. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, that just, I mean, that cut through me, and that wasn't even my personal experience. I mean, my first year, <sighs> it was the first couple of months I was there. I had no idea what I was doing. And... You know, she confirmed that. <laughs> and it's, instead of helping me with it or believing in me or having confidence, it was kind of like, you can't do this. Now, luckily, deep inside somewhere, I knew that I could, and she was wrong. But it took a while for that to really solidify or to come out. I don't even know if I told anybody about this for the longest time, but it was devastating. I just remember, I don't even know what I said to her, but I just remember tears streaming down my face going, I don't know what else to do. Now what? It was just the most painful feeling. And because of that, I'm quite certain she doesn't remember this. I do. But it really took a while for me to kind of get that thought out of my mind that I couldn't do this or I wasn't going to be okay doing it or good at doing it. But I kicked into gear and thought, you know what? I'm going to find someone who believes in me, who thinks that I can do this because I need to have someone believe in me so that I can, again, believe in my self, but to teach me what I need to do so that I can know what to do in these visits. You know, I forgot to add that she didn't really help me know what to say in those sessions. And so this is why I love to help therapists know what to say when they get there and they're feeling some of those feelings, because I think they're normal. I think they're normal too. And I just took a few notes as you were just talking, and there's a few things I want to highlight. Mm -hmm. The, The first thing is that this experience that you described, this sounds to me like trauma. Oh, yes. Right? And the thing that you were looking for was for someone who believes in you. That mm-hmm. is like seeking attachment. Right. Who could teach you. Yes. Right? That's like the therapist who's coming in the room and saying, I'm holding hope for you and here are some skills and we can make this better. And that leads to more confidence. Right. Yeah. Yes. I had those thoughts with her originally. 
And luckily, when she kind of broke that trust, I thought, I'm still going to look for the same thing. It just is the wrong person for me. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to find somebody who did believe in me, or at least I was convinced that he did. <laughs> it was good enough. <laughs> it was good enough. And even if he did if he didn't, I didn't even care. I just thought that he did. So that was fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, went on to get excellent supervision and have other experiences. But even for years after that, it was still stung to remember that and to be able to talk about it. Yeah. Because what do you do when, okay, you're the youngest. I'm sure that people looked at me like you're the youngest, or at least I thought they did, right? And I think the average age in my programs was, you know, probably early 30s and I was early 20s, whatever. But Something kicked into me to go, you know what, just protect yourself, get what you need, get your needs met, and we'll make an assessment and see what to do. You know what I'm hearing sort of echo through this story too, one of the universal threads here is that fear of being a fraud, because certainly I've heard that from so many therapists in our community that it comes up again and again. Imposter syndrome. Mm, Right, right. And if you're new at working with couples, sometimes you think, who am I to sit with this people. I'm in charge of their life, their marriage, Mm -hmm. the most important thing that they're managing. It's up to me. I mean, it it can be overwhelming. (laughs) And you can do it. And even if you don't know what to do, there are plenty of people who will support you to know how to at least, you know, be one session ahead of your clients. Mm -hmm. And that's really it. Yeah. 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 You know, one thing that we talked about earlier in this was in our conversation was the idea of transforming relationships and helping mm-hmm. people get back to the I'm home feelings. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with that phrase. And I see that as being certainly in my own life. Like when I feel like I've got this, I can do this. I could mm-hmm. probably also call those my I'm home feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the confidence. That's the confidence. Yes. I think there's, I need the warm fuzzy wrapped around I'm home feelings has a different texture to me than confidence. Because I think sometimes, as key as that is to us, sometimes that word gets kind of thrown at. Hey, you got to be more confident, kiddo. Get out there. You can do this. Mm-hmm. It's so different how than about, I have, yeah. How about this word, presence? Mm, yeah. I like presence. I like presence. You know, the other thing that's striking me is in our conversation with Terry Real, he talked about how the more mature therapist is somebody who walks across their bedroom the same way they walk into the therapy room. Completely themselves. Mm-hmm. That yes. there's an integration. Yes. That self-knowledge is, that's the presence. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that's there. And that's where the confidence comes from. Mm-hmm. And it's coming from a place where, you know, you might have be afraid of certain things, but it's manageable. Mm-hmm. You're not reacting out of fear. Yeah. And again, if you're afraid of building your practice and you need these clients to come back, or if you are afraid because someone's yelling and it's just scary, or you're afraid that people will find out that you're a fraud, and whatever that fear is, it's so important to be in touch with it and work through it, because to walk into a room fearless is also a gift to bring to your couple and something you want them to aspire to as well. Yeah. I'm looking at fear, and I'm looking at a whole bunch of notes from our conversation today, and I'm thinking of things like, well, I'm just going to read some of these little key phrases that I've written. Defend against discomfort, trauma, Mm -hmm. unexpressed emotions, Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome, wanting someone who believes in me. You know, these are all the things that are showing up with our clients, 
right? This is, they're feeling all of this stuff and they're coming into the therapy room wanting somebody who can be that container, who can hold them, hold that hope for them, be that presence, be fearless with them to say, you're okay to explore it all in here. It's really the same journey. Yes, it's so parallel. And you don't have to share your journey with your client, but if you've had your own journey and you've been through it, you can more easily sit with your couple Mm -hmm. who hasn't completed their journey or they're stuck somewhere in it and help them move forward in their journey. Right, because if you're stuck in your journey, (laughs) right? Yes, you can can only help your couples so far. Right, right. I'm thinking also like that piece about the how to stop bad behavior, that comes back here too, that if your fear is leading you as a therapist, that's another behavior that needs an intervention. Yes. Yeah. And it's important to also have access to your vulnerability in session. Mm-hmm. To say things like, right now I just, I'm really confused. I'm wondering about this, even if you have no idea what they're going to say back to you. Right. Or, or to say, I just I don't. believe you. Right. <gasps> yeah. Or any reaction that you have to gently but firmly share your your inner self with your couple in a way that they can understand and that's therapeutic, but that is present because whatever you feel is what they feel. Yeah. And it's the same. Yeah. It's exactly the same. And often I feel that that's my work. My work, especially when I'm working with couples is to help them find their voice by using mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does it sound like hard work or (laughs) I don't want to discourage people from working with couples or, or accessing all all these um, this part of the journey, but well, it is couples work is hard work. But I find that one of the reasons for me anyway that it is both. I mean, it's like beautifully hard is because it it requires or it asks of me, it invites me to do my own work. Mm-hmm. You know, and so. I believe that in order to be a good therapist of any kind, you have to be doing your own work, but also to be a really good, great couples therapist, there's a different level of relational integration. And I think too, a therapist who's willing to walk into a space that she knows is going to be hard automatically Mm -hmm. puts her on the place of becoming a great therapist. (sighs) That willing to do the work sets her on that path. Yeah. That's who I would want if I were a client. I want to say, are you willing to do hard things? Great, because relationships are hard. Mm. Cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And not only that, but imagine you're a therapist in a training setting. What I like to say is you're supposed to make a lot of mistakes. So if you tell me that you don't make any, you're probably not going to do well here. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Well, I mean, I probably would look at you if you told me you made no mistakes. I'd probably go... I don't think you're telling me the truth because I know the mistakes I've made. What I want to say to them is you will make mistakes, right? Right. No, I know. But if they were to tell yeah. me that they didn't make mistakes, my, oh, right. my response internally that I might not say out loud would be, I know all the mistakes I've made. So if you really haven't made any mistakes, there's a part of me that's not trusting you. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you haven't made the mistakes, you're not even close to getting to the good part of all this. Mm. <laughs> Yay but for mistakes. <laughs> but, and I think this is true for our couples also. Like, go for it. Try things. Don't get it right all the time. And that's where you learn. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're wrong. It doesn't matter if you're right. It matters that you're present, you're that you care, and that we all want to be as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. I think a good word to use right now would be resilience. Mm-hmm. 
we can bounce back. We can share some of our stories with couples, with clients. But it doesn't matter what happened to them. It doesn't matter what was said or happened between them. Bounce back. Let's fix it. Let's go forward. It's about the repair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Repair, but the resilience of being able to just keep growing and changing and no matter what, letting life hit us and go, well, so what? I can do this. I'm home. I'm home. I'm home. <sighs> That's a good place for us to land. Thank you so much, Margaret. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, you can find me on my website at margaretthompsonlcsw.com and it is the site for Couple Therapy Mastery which is the program that I offer for therapists who want to integrate couple therapy into their practice. Thank you so much. We'll include a link to that in our show notes. And I can give you my email as well. It's margaret at saltlakemarital.com. Wonderful. We'll put that all right there in our show notes so that is your email also on your website? Yes, it is. Okay, so we'll just include your, yeah, I'd like to recommend a book, one that I found that really helps me in my practice, but also in training therapists. It's called The Power of Presence. Unlock your potential to influence and engage others. So it's not just a business book, but it's how do you influence and engage your clients as a therapist. And it's written by Christy Hedges. Thank you for that. That is Mm -hmm. such a gift. I look forward to checking it out myself. Great. Well, thank you so much. Today was really fun. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Margaret. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I always love when I get a chance to talk to Margaret and go deeper into the therapist experience. I'd also like to talk to you a little bit right now about Medify. You know, I've been using it for a while myself, and I'm really loving this app, this free app that you can download on both Apple and Android devices. I've had a lot of my clients download it as well. You might remember back a few episodes ago when Terry Reel was talking about how often we leave our feelings. It's not that our feelings have left us, it's that we've left them. And so I'm constantly thinking about this and reintegrating this into my work and thinking about how do we help get back to the place where we can re-engage with our feelings. It's a pretty hard thing to do when we've disengaged from them for so long. And for so many of the individuals and the couples that I work with, this is one of the greatest challenges that we have. It's really hard to come back into relationships and to come from a place of really being able to express ourselves when we don't even know what we're feeling. The Medify app just so supports this process. You know, if you're somebody who needs a little bit of prompting, this might be for you. You can create an entry in this app where you start by naming your primary or secondary emotions, you locate where in the body you're feeling them, and you log some information about what you're feeling. It really helps you to organize all of this and prompts you through the process of pulling together these different aspects of your feelings. Again, this app is for free on both Android and Apple devices, and I can't recommend it enough. I'm just, I'm so excited that that Medify has joined with us to help get the word out about their great app in our podcast. So please do go ahead and check them out. We also would love to invite you to join the Practice of Being Seen community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash popscast. You'll find a link to both of those in our show notes to the Medify app and to our community group. 
For the therapists in our audience, you may also recall that we've probably been talking a lot about our revision retreat that's coming up this August 13th to 16th at Menla Mountain in Phoenicia, New York. We have just a few spots left and we'd love to have you join us there. We'd even love to give you a special discount code. For $44 off, use the discount code SUMMER. That's a capital S-U-M-M-E-R exclamation point. We hope that you've been loving the Practice of Being Seen podcast and that you will help us to spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. Your reviews really do help us get the word out. So go ahead over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review. We'd love to see what you have to say. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.